From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The rise of Donald Trump, Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison was seen as a triumph for a special kind of opportunistic populism. Much was written about what their success meant for democracy. So what does their decline mean? Is it about their politics or a world in crisis? Today, social researcher and contributor to the Saturday paper, Rebecca Huntley, on the fall of the so-called strongman and what's next for right-wing populism. It's Monday, July 18th. So, Rebecca, my first question for you is, where were you when Boris Johnson resigned and and what did you think when you saw the news? (laughs) Well, I was probably... um... Uh, you know, scrolling through social media. The next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. The number 10 door is opening. Boris Johnson's coming out. I will get out of the way. And feeling like it was a question of, you know, not, not if, but when. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. And I think what's interesting now is, is the kind of jostling for who will take his place. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham... But I suppose it's interesting to have looked back, given the actual moment of Partygate happened so long ago, about how not not only that kind of initial mistake, but how badly they managed it ongoing on top of other kinds of things. So when it when it finally happened, it really felt like something that could have happened at any time in the last six to seven weeks. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. And obviously Boris Johnson was grouped with Donald Trump and and also at times our own former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, as this kind of populist, strongman-style conservative leader. When you look at the three of them together, how alike do you think that they really are? Look, I think this is interesting. I mean, I, you know, when Donald Trump was first elected, there was some really interesting work coming out of academia in the United States that did some really useful, I suppose, cross-cultural analysis of these kinds of governments, including places like Europe and South America, um, democracies like Australia, United States and the UK, to see if there were some common traits and you, you don't want to generalise too much, but I think that one of the things that this work showed, it was coming out of um, the Kennedy School of Harvard, was saying that, you know, critical to all of them was actually a kind of social and cultural anxiety <laughs> around change. So there, there is that kind of common trope, which is that these authoritarian right-wing populist Governments find, I suppose, the pressure point in the culture at the time with enough cohorts of voters and they twist it. And the thing that's really, the thing that's really uh, frees them to do that is they're, let's say, less attached to evidence-based decision-making and the truth <laughs> than, um, than other political ideologies and they're just very good. They're very kind of, they've got a, to use a great Jewish word, they've got a kind of chutzpah and just a shameless ability to attack the elites, even though all of them are kind of, you can almost, you can't, can't imagine anybody more elite 
than Boris Johnson. It is a truly shameful vignette of almost superhuman undergraduate uh, arrogance and toffishness and twittishness, I suppose. But, you know, it was great fun at the time. You can't imagine anyone largely more, more privileged than Donald Trump within their culture, but they get away with that. It's really quite extraordinary. I don't need anybody's money. I would have more money than anybody ever. I've had friends say, Donald, can I give you 10 million? And the kind of, um, you know, the, the daggy dad every man act of Scott Morrison. Take me to the April sun in Cuba. Oh, take me to the April sun in Cuba. I so there's some common tropes. You don't want to over, in common you know, characteristics, you want to over egg them a bit. But it's interesting to see how those kinds of figures fare when you have a full-blown Vandinkum global crisis, which has multi-dimensions, and how how kind of how they stand up in that kind of environment, despite their "I'm a strong man, I'm going to do stuff" rhetoric. Can they actually pull it off when the going gets tough? Mm. And. All three men who are speaking about, they all lost office after just one term. And there has been a lot of commentary about why that was and and whether this really marks the end of their style of politics. But when you take a look at it now, why is it that you think that they actually all lost power one after the other? Look, I think there's so many elements and some of those are specific to the political cultures they're in. But I think that, you know, the COVID pandemic is genuinely unprecedented. Certainly in my time as a as a researcher, 20 years of particularly looking at Australians respond to crisis, whether that be a terrorist crisis or whether that be GFC, kind of doesn't matter. This is just like nothing we've ever had. And so it may have been that any leader was going to be a target for, um, eventually a target for voter anger at the ballot box. Certainly all three of them handled crises incredibly badly and one of the things that they ignored was the important symbolic and emotional need for the population have for this kind of care and guidance and leadership. I mean, leadership in a kind of a much less macho way and in a much more kind of basically competent, reasonable, empathetic way, which is clearly what a lot of, you know, clearly what the majority of people respond to. So they kind of made all the big mistakes. If you look at the literature around crisis leadership, they made all the big mistakes, all of, all three mm. of them. So I think there's a lot of things that they did themselves and that the times have done to them. We'll be back after this. The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more. The city of London in Andrew O'Hagan's latest novel is crumbling. But don't mistake this for pessimism. Instead, the author insists it's a necessary process for a better future. Change doesn't just happen because it's time for a change. Change has to be forced. 
We live in the end not in countries that are settled places, they're just imagined communities. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew O'Hagan to discuss his latest Caledonian Road. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rebecca, you're saying that the downfall of Boris Johnson and Trump and Morrison, it's about their failure when it comes to leadership in a crisis. But what is it that you think we actually expect from leaders when something like a pandemic is happening? What does the research say? Well, a lot of the research shows that what people want is early recognition that something's happening and to actually, you actually set out a plan. And even though that plan might change, to be quite on the front foot about it. A lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat. We're in very good shape. One of the big mistakes that Donald Trump made is that he just continued to downplay <laughs> downplay the pandemic and say it wasn't a thing and say not a real thing and, you know, kind of make masks a kind of a freedom stuff. No, I want people to have a certain freedom and I don't believe in that, no. And I don't agree with the statement that if everybody wear a mask, everything disappears. Hey, Dr Fauci said don't wear a mask. Our Surgeon General, terrific guy, said don't wear a mask. You know, in his term, 400 thousand Americans died of COVID and some of those deaths were preventable and that's the deaths we know. Then the next thing they want is really a kind of a creative collaboration saying look we're going to marshal everything that we can with the government and act and external to the government to to find a creative response to this and this is of course where the Morrison government failed. Our vaccination program and strategy is on track and that's confirmed again by the visit that uh, the Minister of Health and I have made here. They didn't look like that they were on the front foot. They were very reactive in many ways. They let the states do the heavy lifting and they missed an opportunity for really showing that they were guiding, protecting and really providing a framework for the response and that was in many ways where they failed. Can you just, you know what, can you just say sorry, Jase? It'll make <laughs> me feel so much better and then I feel like I can move on. He won't. Well, what we're doing is fixing the problems and getting on with it. And yeah. that's what we have to do. Just, and uh, sorry, we've had guys. our problems. There's no doubt about that. And they're, and they're problems that aren't always things within our control. That's the nature of COVID-19. Scott, I'd even, I'd even take a, my badge. All of them missed the important role of symbolic leadership and guidance. And there is really a lot of research and a lot of literature that shows that People really want to feel that their leaders are at least present. They may not necessarily hold a hose, but they're around supporting the people that do hold a hose. And, you know, um, Donald Trump spent quite a lot of his presidential term on the golf course. Somebody's having a party. Somebody's in Hawaii. All of that stuff in and of themselves is more moments aren't a problem, but they tell the public that at a larger level something's being missed, something not, is not being done. And, of course, more than any other event in 20 years of research was clear because I was doing focus groups the whole way through. For the first time in my entire research career, people could draw, the majority of people could draw a direct line from a bad decision-making by the federal government and what they were going to do that very day. And it absolutely incensed people. So you can kind of, you can see all those kinds of things playing out and unravelling Um because in a sense these men lacked seriousness and competency, which again undermines their kind of I'm a strong man, authoritarian, you know, clear thinking, straight talking kind of individual man of action and they ended up being really quite 
deflated and hollowed by the end of their end of their the end of their tenures. Mm. And in these focus groups, did what people say that they wanted from politics change over the course of the pandemic? Do they want a different thing now, post-pandemic, than they might have two and a half years ago? So I think one of the things that is emerging, and I need to see how that um, the trajectory of that and the conversations ongoing, is that not so much in the first, I would say, six to nine months of the pandemic, but as things started to get really, really tough in the second wave in places like Victoria, but also in parts of Sydney, when people were locked down really, really, you know, in a kind of brutal way, is that we started to see this kind of language in some groups emerge around freedom and rights, which is not something that has featured in, in, in a lot in the focus groups I've done in my life, felt very American. And for a while, everybody kind of dismissed it, kind of a minority, loud minority that kind of gets its its platform from places like, you know, Sky News. They came in their thousands to the national capital, marching on old Parliament House. And then the news. But then when you saw just the number of people that descended on Canberra who were not just anti-vaxxers, but found that entire kind of, you know, were attracted to that kind of narrative and story. Irrespective of what you think about the vaccines, you have to admit, people deserve freedom to make up their own medical decisions. It was I was quite shocked at just how many people were prepared to turn up. And you started to get those kinds of, of language coming into groups. And it's not just people who are anti-vaxxers, it's people who are alienated, antagonistic to the whole political system and forms of government. And so that feels very much like an American import that once upon a time I would have said would never have deep roots or last or grow in Australia, but I think that it's kind of watched that space. Mm. Okay, so with Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, Scott Morrison all now gone, what do you think is next for the parties that they used to head up and for right-wing populism? They're just very good at reimagining themselves, reinventing themselves. I mean, you know, I, I don't know anything about physics, but, you know, I know enough. I watch enough Stranger Things to know <laughs> that there are all these theories about time not being linear, right, and things looping around and, and, and certainly progress, social progress, particularly from the left, of which I am, is never linear. We lurch forward and lurch back and lurch to the side. This kind of idea that those three men have ended and then from that will build something else is probably naive. I think they'll be very good in different ways to kind of go back and think about how do we rethink and reinvent populism and this kind of right-wing populism in a way that's going to get traction. You could see, certainly in the last election, the Liberal Party feebly trying to do that in the seat of Warringo with um, issues around trans people and sport, it didn't work, but that doesn't mean that a version of that isn't going to work next time. So I think that they're just really good at reinventing and respawning and and we've just got to wait, what is the next manifestation and be ready for it and be vigilant. Mm. Rebecca, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Momenta. 
This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Also in the news today, the government has restored pandemic leave payments as the latest wave of infections worsens. Yesterday, New South Wales reported 10,198 new cases, 2,057 hospitalisations and 63 people in ICU. In Victoria, there were 9,630 new cases, 760 people in hospital and 37 in ICU. And during an Australian-American leadership dialogue in Washington, opposition leader Peter Dutton has called for the timetable to be brought forward on Australia's acquisition of nuclear submarines. Defence Minister Richard Miles said Australia would announce in the first quarter of next year whether it would buy American or British submarines and that a commitment would be made then to when they would become operational. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.